part three of our series on your pal Charlie, things start ramping up for the Manson family. Drug deals, biker gangs, race wars, the Beatles, and some murder. This episode dives into it all. And what about Manson the artist? Will he ever get the elusive record deal? I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you came here looking for closure today, stick around. Much like when it's her time of the month, you're not getting any this week. This is Necronomapod. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Two bodies inside, two bodies outside. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. Alas, we will not be wrapping this episode up tonight. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Hmm. I thought it was going to be five, so I don't care. Four is pretty good. <laughs> How about that? Is that what you had your money on? The over-under <laughs> was four and you went five? And I don't want to hear from any Red Wings fans about my opening line. And I'm not talking about hockey motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you, you fucking heathens. What about, <laughs> what about the boots? The Red Wing boots? That's a thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's hey, a, is that like work those. boots. I don't, I don't do manual labor. <laughs> We're penny loafers, pal. He has copper toe boots, not the steel toe. <laughs> the penny in there. But you got to tell the whole story, right? How about that pussy Tom Brady, huh? He's done. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great performance to go out on, huh, Mike? That pussy. <laughs> <The goat. laughs> to go out on. You act like he's done. He'll be back. He's not retired. You don't. The greatest of all time doesn't go out on a first round loss to the Cowboys. Uh, okay. He'll be back next year. I don't think he should be. He should be done. I mean, they made the playoffs. It's not a complete bust of a season. They can go three and whatever, 19 or whatever the NFL is. That division is garbage. Spoiler alert. So was ours. You know, I hit a fucking, I had a five game parlay over the weekend. (laughs) I hit everything except that Fucking Chargers game. Really? You have got to be kidding me. Who did they play? The Jaguars came back. Uh, like 30-point deficit or whatever the fucking score was. Yeah. Goddamn. The fucking Jacksonville Jaguars are advancing in the playoffs and Tom Brady isn't. Just fucking nuke <laughs> the world. Like, who gives a shit anymore? This fucking planet sucks. Fucking Jaguars. This planet sucks. <laughs> Get out of here. Most irrelevant team in history. Sorry to the Khan family. It had to be said. <laughs> Does anybody ever remember that they're even a team in the NFL? Like other than not right now? Like if you if you ask me the name, I don't like know. I don't all, actively think about them, but I, I'm aware ask, they exist in the world. If you ask the average person to list all 32 NFL teams, I bet the Jaguars are on the bottom like seven on everybody's list. Hmm. Everybody's. Really? I think so. Very forgettable franchise. Wouldn't the like the newest franchises over the past 20, 30 years, wouldn't those come in the bottom of awareness, bottom of the list? I'm not so sure. I guess it would depend. Like Carolina. Because they, they tend to get a lot. But Carolina came in the same time, I think, as Jacksonville. 
They were like relatively the same time. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, but I mean, those like, would be the least. I don't know. Like the Panthers had Cam Newton for a while. They were getting headlines with that. I couldn't even tell you one player that's ever played for the Steve Burline. I think was their first quarterback. Think, that's the last Jack, right. Jaguar I can name. Mark Brunel. Ah, uh, Brunel. Yeah. Was he, he was a quarterback? Mm-hmm. See, yeah. okay. So we we named two players <laughs> in the how long they've been around? 25 years? Just what I mean, like, I, I don't know. I just feel like in every sport, there's like that one or two franchises that you're just like, oh, I forgot they're, they're like a team. I think that's probably right. Pittsburgh Pirates. Like, who even knew that they had a baseball team anymore? If it wasn't for the fact that it was Cleveland and Pittsburgh rivalry, I feel like the Pirates would be in that category. No one thinks of the Pirates. No. Right. Yeah, just one of those teams that kind of flies under the radar, doesn't yeah. really make a lot of noise, is not signing huge names. That's not to say that Cleveland makes a lot of noise, but, you know, we at least have the fact that we always suck, so people talk about us like, oh, look at Cleveland again. Baseball's all right, though. Baseball's been doing good. We were at a baseball playoff game this past year, Mike. Come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, Don't be no, one's forgetting no one's sleeping on the Guardians. It's, I'm not saying that. Just saying we get remembered maybe for not so great things, typically. Sometimes. Also, our river catching on fire. <laughs> Twice. Maybe it's by, because local assholes like you can't ever let it go, <laughs> and they just keep bringing it up and associating that <laughs> event. It's a delicious beer, though. <laughs> it is a delicious beer. Burning River Ale. All right, well, that's I'm out. Oh, I wanted to mention our <laughs> trivia events coming up this week. Oh, yeah. Just want to remind people, though, that it's, it's a ticketed event because... Uh, overwhelming uh, response to that notice we put up. So we had to pass out tickets for it. So don't just show up out of the blue. It's a very small venue and there's just not enough seats. We didn't know what to expect when we announced it with regards to feedback. And it's, yeah, it's a smaller venue and we got a lot of responses. So we had to make the decision to make it a free ticketed event where you could sign up and we would do a random lottery. People have already been contacted. So if you've not been contacted directly by us, um, Unfortunately, you do not have tickets at this one, but perhaps we'll do one again in the future. Maybe a bigger venue. See how it goes. Bigger venue for a uh, little hangout session. Yeah. And no, it will not be recorded or anything like that. It's just not that kind of event. So. It's not It's not like going to be a live show. No, it's not a show. I'm not even going to be on a microphone. Like It's literally going to be like you and maybe Ian reading trivia questions, and I'm going around collecting answers. Yeah. But it's not going to be like bits and conversation and stuff like that. It's just a trivia night. Yeah. yeah so... I think some people thought maybe they're going to be missing out on something like that. You're you're not, promise. Now no one's going to show up. <laughs> like assholes. <laughs> so where we left off on part 3, Charlie had made friends with some very powerful people in the music industry. He recorded with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys a handful of times and then got the opportunity to record at Dennis's brother Brian Wilson's house. And from we talked about it last week, Charlie was not easy to work with pulling out switchblades and sheds. <laughs> so, um, Isn't that what you're supposed to do to your record producer yeah. when he's trying to record a hit album for you? Pull out a switchblade. Chance of a lifetime. Yeah. Brian Wilson's personal recording studio. I'm pretty confident that's how Prince got a record deal. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, threaten people. <laughs> and then we ended with the Beatles white album coming out. Dave, you brought up the question last week. How are they making money to support all this shit? I did ask that question. Yeah. So Ian's like, <laughs> in short, they weren't. <laughs> well, they were living real good when uh, when the party was going on at Dennis Wilson's house and he was paying everything. When that party ended and Charlie and his family moved to Spawn Ranch, they needed to figure out what to do for money and stuff. 
Charlie was banking on being signed to a record deal. However, until then, they were getting into darker drug dealings to make money, specifically with a biker gang, the Straight Satans, which we'll get into that later. That was my nickname in college. Straight Satan. They were terrified of me. They thought I was a hard ass. It was just like the, 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 you know, campus fucking hardcore badass dude. Must have been my lack of tattoos and uh, <laughs> lack of self-confidence and my flaccid penis. Intimidated everybody. And shitting on your front porch <laughs> on your leg, right? That was way before college. There was a lot. There might have been some front porch shitting, but that was not me in college. <laughs> and the straight Satans brought in a bunch of hardcore criminals hanging out at Spawn Ranch. And George Spawn was none the wiser. He was, like we said last week, he was 80 years old, blind, and he had Squeaky taking care of him, cooking his food and stuff. And she was sexually taking care of George, too, whether it was for her to stay in the house or to keep, you know, or forced, like Charlie instructing people. There's two sides to that story, but George was happy and he really wasn't complaining. Honestly, what more could you ask for? You're 80 and blind. This girl blows you every day and cleans your house and makes your food. Maybe a little bit of that acid like too, but I don't, he's got almost everything he needs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sharing the acid with him. At this point, the story branches off in two different ways. One, the lead prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi's theory, um, which was the helter skelter theory. And two, the idea that the Tate LaBianca murders were copycat killings to throw off police revenge for Charlie's music career, not panning out or a combination of two of those, or maybe all three of them. We're going to lay out the Helter Skelter theory, which that shit really picks up on December 31st, 1968. We also need to note that this is relying pretty much solely on Manson family member, Paul Watkins. Did he flip eventually? Yeah, he became one of the the main witnesses. Okay. So he got a fucking immunity? Rat. He's a rat. <laughs> I'm not sure if he had immunity. Okay. Next week, we'll talk about Linda Kasabian. I think she's the only one that had full immunity. Right. Mafia Mike over there. He doesn't like rats. What do you do to rats, uh, Mike? <laughs> doesn't matter, Dave. Okay. Doesn't matter. We take care of business. Got it. Oh! <laughs> In this theory, Charlie had been predicting a race war between black people and white people for a long time before he started using the term helter-skelter. Helter Skelter was just used the first time on December 31st, 1968, according to Paul Watkins. Based on how Charlie talks in his book, I think this is real. I mean, he really did do this. He was paranoid about a race war. Um, it's just how much did he believe in it? You know, or was it an excuse to get to the whatever he was trying to do? So how this goes, Charles Manson and his family would come out on top of this war with Charlie's future album having subtle messages within the lyrics like he supposedly heard in the White Album. This war would kick off when black men were no longer allowed to be around white women, specifically have sex with white women. This would cause an uptick in black men committing violent crimes against whites. White people would then start committing violent crimes in retaliation, to which the Black Panthers would pretty much wipe out all white people, whether they were racist or not. Charlie and his family would escape this war and waited out in a secret city underneath Death Valley, which they would have to get through um, by a hole in the ground. 
The song Helter Skelter supposedly had coded lyrics that gave them directions out to this hole. Mm. You know what I picture that last season of Stranger Things when they're out at that place in the desert? It's just this little oh, like yeah. door in the middle of the <laughs> desert that they walk into. That's kind of what it's described yeah. as. It's just like a little hole. That's what I picture. Yeah. So he really is not taking sides in this race. He's like the Switzerland of the race war. He's just going to sit it out and let everyone kill each other. Yeah. Interesting. Is this supposed to overtake the whole country or just California or just? This is the whole country. This whole is, country. Yeah. And he thinks there's enough Black Panthers in the country to wipe out all white people? Well, it wouldn't just be black. Like the Black Panthers would be leading it, but okay. it would be all black people versus would all wipe white out people. all white people. Yeah. All right. When this war was over, Charlie and his family would come out of the hole in the desert as the only surviving white people in the country, and black people would be happy to see them. Yeah, I bet. According to this thing, <laughs> this is so stupid, this next part. According to this theory, Charlie said that black people um, had never ran a government or anything like that, so they would be happy to see some white people again, like, hey, help us out with this. <laughs> to think that if people saw Charles Manson and his family are like, thank right. God, I want you to run yeah. my country yeah. now. Save us, please. We made a, a grave mistake. <laughs> I bet these numb nuts know how to write a constitution. Mm-hmm. This picture of these disgusting hippies walking out of a hole in the ground and everyone's like, yay, white people were saved. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> According to Paul Watkins, they had began preparing for Helter Skelter in the months before the Tate LaBianca murders. They worked on songs for the album, which they you know, thought would set off the war, and they built doom buggies for their escape from Spawn Ranch to Death Valley when the war started. A lot of doom buggies being built. Yeah? Like scrap part doom buggies? Yeah, like stealing cars for, right. you know, to like outfit them into doom buggies and stuff nice they were gonna take these all the way to death valley yeah it's not that close (laughs) (laughs) well they uh not in a doom buggy anyway that's where you draw the line on this plan dave (laughs) that's where this plan has gone too far (laughs) like wait a minute the doom buggies would never make it that far (laughs) it's got like mad max road warrior vibes that's what they look like balls were driving out in the desert on dune buggies they found a ranch closer to death valley um and that was barker ranch owned by legendary game show host bob <laughs> is that right <laughs> in my version it is <laughs> sometimes i go rogue in my stories you don't know <laughs> there was a ranch kind of next door to barker ranch that they looked at first but barker ranch was really remote and Charlie felt that that fit perfectly to get ready for Helter Skelter. Makes sense. So they're bouncing back and forth between Spawn Ranch and Barker Ranch throughout most of this. Like, were they squatters? Was it an abandoned ranch? Uh, Yeah, that one they were not. Yeah, that was an abandoned ranch. So they took most of the dune buggy stuff. uh, They were kind of doing it half and half, but they would ride their dune buggies out to Barker Ranch and... Hmm. I think in the version I read, they had promised Bob, you let us stay here. We assure you we will get our pets spayed and neutered. And he was like, that's all I need to know. You can stay whenever you want. He was real into that. Well, yeah, of course. It was a very passionate. Uh, he was. Subject for him. Good deal on Bob's part. Yeah. And they get the they get the crash and all their pets are 
snipped. Did Squeaky have to fillet Bob Barker, though, as part of this deal, or did she just stick with... Uh, no, he was spayed and neutered, too. So, so he, he didn't need any of that. <laughs> he got that done, too. It's a promo for the show. So let's get into the White Album and the supposed messages hidden in some of the songs. The White Album has some weird shit on it. Yeah, I think some it was... interesting songs. One of the documentaries I watched... Um, about Charles Manson, and I think it was the one that was real focused on the music aspect, said that Charles Manson and, his, and the family, they were not the only ones to find some form of meaning in the White Album, mm. you know, like this, that every there was lots of people getting high, listening to the White Album and, you know, coming up with that, things, yeah. you know. There's some good songs on there. Yeah. Some weird shit, but there's some good ones. The, uh, the song Honey Pie, the lyric, oh, honey pie, my position is tragic. Come and show me the magic of your Hollywood song. Uh, Charlie said that the Beatles knew that Jesus Christ had returned to earth and he is in Los Angeles. They wanted Charlie to create his song, being his album, that would set off Helter Skelter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Adds up. Adds up. I can see where he pulled that out of, out of there. Uh, the songs I Will, Your Blues, Don't Pass Me By, and Blue Jay Way were all interpreted as the Beatles calling for Jesus Christ. Blue Jay Way appeared on the Magical Mystery Tour, the album that preceded the White Album. Charlie and his family had come to call their journey from Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco to Spawn Ranch, the Magical Mystery Tour. Ah, I see the tie-in now. That's my favorite Beatles album, Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. That's good stuff there. Okay. I'm getting blank stares like you two have never listened to a Beatles album in your entire life. I've listened to their greatest hits. That's it. I could not tell you a single album or what would be on it. Yeah, I think I'm the same. It's in the Fair name. enough. Greatest hits is fantastic, but I've never loved like the Beatles enough to kind of dive into their catalog. Yeah. In all fairness to all those Beatles versus Stones people, I've done the same thing with the Rolling Stones. I've done a greatest hits. I've never dove into any of their albums either. Yeah. Not that great. So you're a team Beatles. I am. I think I would be too. Yeah, I would say team Beatles. I don't like the Rolling Stones at all. No. Not even a little bit. A couple, well, I couple like good them. ones. I, mean, I like a few of their songs, but I, I think I would like the Beatles more. I was watching, was I watching a clip of something the other day with, you know, 80-year-old Mick Jagger dancing around on stage in a belly shirt. It is just the weirdest <laughs> thing. It's weird. Rock and roll in general is a weird thing. Like, I have friends that don't like, like rock music or metal or anything they're like why are these old men acting like this like this is not cool and like, like wow we, i understand what we grew up in a culture like where you see it and you're like this is good music it's great yeah. but then i think about it like from the outside and i'm like like i remember like lemmy used to wear like pants so tight you could see his cock you're like this guy's 70 years old like what what is cool about this well, I get it was that. Lemmy, so it was, though. <laughs> but, it's, I mean, it's not. Like, I don't want to see his cock. <laughs> but I, mean, really, I, get that, I get that from the outside. Like, like I don't know. Like, Kiss is, like, in their 70s wearing face paint and tights and yeah. seven-inch heels. From the outside, like, this is fucking weird. Why do people do this? <laughs> like, maybe it's time, like, like, retire. Go home. Oh, yeah, there's some people that should retire. Definitely the Rolling Stones. 
I mean, I put them up there as probably like the weirdest. Like and Mick Jagger still wearing those tight ass pants too. Like, yeah, it's just, just Keith Richards looks like he's dead. Mm-hmm. They have so, the 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 number of backing musicians they have to take on tour with them. I'm not even sure their instruments are plugged in anymore. They're, so they're still touring regularly. I mean, I haven't really. I don't know how followed. long ago this was. It wasn't that long ago. But yeah. Or just the rock genre in general is like a free pass to be as ridiculous as you want for as, as long as you want. Mm. And just be an old man fucking thrusting your hips up there <laughs> in any other line of work that's like sexual assault or uh, misconduct. At the very least, you're yeah. visiting HR. You're right, though. You see a lot of these like early 80s metal bands that are back to touring now. And yeah, you know, they're in their 60s and they have like long wispy Scullets, hair and leather Scullets. yeah right in leather pants and they're like what, what are you doing and, and they were <laughs> on like sir they were on the verge of not being good in their prime right so like now it's like what are you doing yeah like james hetfield cut all his fucking hair off he doesn't look ridiculous like maybe get a haircut you look right. so silly yeah change with the times a little yeah bit. yeah make the effort that's like the fucking uh the rockers or no the midnight express from wrestling the original they haven't changed they have not changed they have not cut their hair they still have the mullets like back Skullets. in the 80s yeah Skullets now it is so terrible still coked out i saw a picture of those two and steroid I'm like, bellies it just absurd yeah <laughs> like you're, you guys are like 60s 70s yeah. like is it so much to ask to go on to go to a rock show and see the lead singer in a nice cardigan perhaps <laughs> playing his his les paul you know what as long as the music sounds good we saw the eagles dave they yep. were Black suits and white shirt and tie. Right. And it was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. Agree. They were not acting like fools. They sat on <laughs> stools and just played. Right. It was amazing. I agree. They weren't pretending to be in their 20s. Well, they were always cool, though, the, the Eagles. But then maybe that's it. You change with the times. Uh, the song Sexy Sadie. This one was just seen as proof that the Beatles were talking directly to Charlie and the family. Remember, uh, Su- oh, yeah. Susan Atkins, her nickname was Sadie. And a lot of people called her sexy Sadie before that song came out because she was um, she was living that free love life a little harder than everyone else was. Yeah. USA, <laughs> USA, USA. The next one, um, Rocky Raccoon. That's a good tune. I like that song. To the family, Raccoon really meant the racist term coon. The lyrics also mention the Bible, so that's this is all just proof positive to them. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. I don't, I don't even feel like I need to read the whole lyric for this. It's just the term Rocky Raccoon being Almost in repeatedly. Here. Happiness is a warm gun. Charlie took this as the Beatles were telling black people to get guns and fight white people. <laughs> <laughs> the lyric was, when I hold you in my arms. And I feel my finger on your trigger. I know no one can do me no harm because happiness is a warm gun. Bang, bang, shoot, shoot. Mm. What the fuck would he have thought of Paul Stanley's love gun? <laughs> I don't want to know. Charlie's not thinking metaphorically, I don't think, Mike. So he might not have gotten that. I just want to know what he would have made of it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. Uh, Blackbird. The lyrics, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. They took this to mean the black man is going to arise and overthrow the white man. Helter Skelter, look out, Helter Skelter. She's coming down fast. Charlie, that was, so that turned into the saying, Helter Skelter, the race war is coming. Yeah. Helter Skelter is a really good song. I like that. Until one. this happened, you know. Well, <laughs> yeah. Put a little damper on that, right? Yeah. 
the song Piggies, the lyrics, uh, what they need is a damn good whacking. That just meant, you know, that black people are going to, you know, come down on the establishment, the man. and Revolution number nine. Um, according to Paul Watkins, this song from the White Album is the one that Charlie talked about the most. Charlie himself said that this song turned him on to the Book of Revelations, which Charlie said, quote, predicts the overthrow of the establishment. The pit will be opened and that's when it will all come down. A third of mankind will die. That song's like a literal acid trip. It is wild. Is it? I mean, oh, yeah. based on the noises and sounds in it, I, w- yeah. I almost, when I was reading the notes, I forgot, I don't know, I got distracted. I went to the next paragraph or something, but I was going <laughs> to stop and listen to the song. Um, and then I didn't, but it sounded like it was going to be wild. It's like John Lennon doing like uh, weird Yoko Ono shit. Mm-hmm. Like a... <laughs> <laughs> is john lennon the worst part of the beatles i can't stand him i love john lennon i think his i like one of his solo songs um and then i feel like every beatles song i like it's it's mccartney it's not lennon i would have to go back and look but i don't know i don't think i'm a john lennon fan he sings most of my favorites i think mm. <clears throat> was that yoko yeah <laughs> 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 Fucking ridiculous. She's the absolute worst. That guy, if he wouldn't have got hooked up with that knucklehead, I don't know. We'd be going to a Beatles reunion tour this Boy, this week. You might be. She is wild. There's that clip of uh John doing a duet with Chuck Berry. They're singing it and Yoko starts doing that nonsense and Chuck Berry's eyes wide and like, what the fuck? <laughs> Instant Karma is my favorite John Lennon song. It's a great song. I love that one. Other than that, I don't. I don't love him. His solo stuff. I'd have to go back and look at the Beatles to see mm-hmm. whose was whose. But I feel like it's usually McCartney. Wings. Come on, who doesn't love Wings? Right. Wings was good. Also, Chicken Wings. Not bad. Those are not bad. <laughs> you had some Nashville Wings recently. I've been thinking about that since you told me. <laughs> Yeah, I took down I gonna bring it back 20 wings the other fox. day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. That was good music conversation. People are probably like, they always bring it back to <laughs> fucking food. So in the song uh, Revolution 9, Charlie focused a lot on the machine gunfire, the oinking pigs, and the word rise. In his Rolling Stone interview, Charlie said the pig sounds followed by the machine gunfire, quote, predict the violent overthrow of the white man. When asked whether the Beatles intended... That to be the message, Charlie replied, quote, I don't know whether they did or not, but it's there. It's an association in the subconscious. This music is bringing on the revolution, the unorganized overthrow of the establishment. The Beatles know in the sense that the subconscious knows. Okay, terrific. (laughs) (laughs) Right before shit started to hit the fan, uh, we need to bring up Tex Watson in the belladonna plant aka deadly nightshade so the leaves and berries of the belladonna plant can cause hallucinations and if in really high doses you can suffer severe memory loss coma or you could potentially die you can use the root to make tea which you just drink a really really small amount and that results in an extremely realistic hallucination can you get some of that we'll dose mike next week (laughs) pretty funny I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> this story is confirmed by others, um, but Charlie's version, he wrote, quote, 
One day, Indian Joe, a biker who often hung around the ranch, was hiking around the canyons a mile or two from the ranch houses when he stumbled upon some belladonna plants. He brought them down to the kitchen and explained to Brenda how to trim the plants, boil the roots, and make belladonna tea. The plants were potent and poisonous, and it wasn't advisable to cook them indoors because of the fumes. But Brenda trimmed the roots to about medium-sized onions and began boiling them in the kitchen anyway. Tex walked in and wanted to know what was in the pot. He was told, quote, this is what belladonna is made from. With that, he picked up a large root and started scarfing it like he was eating an apple. Before the full effect hit him, Tex caught a ride into town. That guy goes fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) That is a motherfucker right there. Um, Further in that page of the book, Charlie talks about Brenda like she just because she's boiling this in a closed area where you're not supposed to she just stumbled outside and fell on the porch and was just like laying there passed <laughs> out <laughs> fucking brenda these people it's all like their brains have already been fried from years of acid and, and whatever else they're up to huh within thought, a year and a half though yeah. they, like they're just partying non-stop not if only of... fucking ronald reagan was around to tell them they shouldn't be doing this oh maybe they <laughs> wouldn't have done no. drugs Nancy with her hmm. just say no. If only there was a war on drugs back then, we could have fixed them. <laughs> I mean, it's worked out so well. Lives wouldn't sense. have been lost to all of this when they do a murder. So Tex hopped on a motorcycle, drove into L.A., crashed into a car, and then got inside that car and went to sleep. <laughs> he was arrested, and three days later, he was back on Spawn Ranch. But everyone said that Tex was never the same after this, like eating all that belladonna root permanently fucked up his brain you don't say and he Not- never stopped using lsd you know mm. throughout this too so also halluc- you know hallucinogens on hallucinogens we shouldn't skip over the fact he fucking wrecked a motorcycle into a car perhaps some cte going on possibly i think that's the least of his worries at this point i'm not sure but you never know i'm not sure Okay. Maybe the drugs helped balance him out. We don't have another fucking Chris Benoit situation going on here. Well, hmm. So you're saying if you get CTE, you should even yourself out with some nightshade. Look, I'm no doctor. I'm not saying any of that. (laughs) Just saying there was probably a lot going on in the situation. He had done a lot of drugs. A ton. But then they said when he came back from this, he was different. Was it the Belladonna? Was it the Belladonna mixed with a massive head injury? Just asking the important questions that nobody cares to know. We'll probably never know, Mike. It's going to remain a mystery. I think it's safe to say nobody will ever follow up on that question. It's probably all of the above. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Why don't you write to him in prison and ask him? (laughs) Do you think he knows how to write? (laughs) He found Jesus in prison. Of course he knows how to write. Oh, spoiler alert. Goddamn. I also didn't know he went to prison. Jeez. (laughs) Okay. Well, we know how this ends. Why even finish a story? (laughs) In March 1969, Charlie was expecting that um, music producer Terry Melcher would be coming out to Spawn Ranch and they would finalize a record contract. But Terry Melcher never showed up. (laughs) You think he's just sitting there tapping his watch every day? I know he's coming today. Where's that motherfucker at? Terry Melcher had been out there before and watched them play some songs. Um, in In Charlie's mind, it was proof positive. Mm-hmm. Um, something was planted in his head that he was expecting Melcher to come back. Yeah. That or he made himself believe. He made himself believe, I think, that Melcher was coming back. 
Meltzer when he left, left the last time. So like, uh, yeah, sounds real good, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, maybe in a week or two, uh, we'll, we'll touch base. Yeah. Like just one of those, I want to get the fuck out of here type things. That's exactly <laughs> what it sounded like. Yeah. I think I said that to you guys every time we're done recording. Yeah, we'll see you guys in a week or two. Let me know. Those outlines show up every fucking few days. So when Meltzer never showed up, Charlie is fucking furious. And it's the first time that he's looked like a failure in front of his followers, all these people. Um, people are kind of questioning, like, yeah, the shine's rubbing off a, a bit with the music thing. They're probably starving. He told him he's getting his deal. They're going to have lots of money. And-, and at the same time, he wasn't very happy about the Beach Boys stuff. Last week, we played uh, that song, Cease to Exist. Which he had... I thought good vocals on. Mm-hmm. He had a I good like voice. It, I like it better than the Beach Boys version. <laughs> so that was sold to the Beach Boys. Charlie accepted cash and a motorcycle as payment. However, the Beach Boys changed the title, a bunch of the lyrics, and didn't credit Charlie anywhere on the album art. Charlie felt that he was owed more money, and he was ramping up the idea that they needed dune buggies and shit to get out to the desert. So he really needed that money. But... So he he accepted cash and a motorcycle as payment and then assumed he was owed more money That's or because the, it, like so, the album became a hit. Like, why does he think he's owed more money, especially if they changed fucking 90 percent of the song? They say that, you know, he signed a thing. They agreed on this. Charlie's version is no, that wasn't the full deal. I was supposed to be given more money. Is this, in fact, the same motorcycle that Tex wrecked, I causing him to I, have massive CTE? I don't know. So the Beach Boys maintain, no, we we gave him what he asked for. And he I, came back with, oh, I, I was promised more. I believe Charlie wanted the recordings from Brian Wilson's studio. His recordings. His recordings that he did. His master tapes, if you will. Yeah. They're, but they, they still exist. But they own them. Right. And I, I read that um, one of the lawyers in charge of of that shit said, yeah, the Charles Manson, you know, that those recordings still exist, but there is no way in hell that they will ever be released. Wow. That's crazy, huh? Why not? Like, especially nowadays, like if they can just make all the money off of it, because you know, it's going to fucking make a ton. At the time, it was all like try to every, like once everything came out and people were arrested those records, you know, got locked away. It was like, we need to like distance ourselves completely from this I mean, I situation. get that. I get that. <laughs> but, but I don't know. They just, the huh. lawyer said it'll never be released. Yeah, enough time has passed, right? I mean, everybody knows they were involved in yeah. the story now. Yeah. Release those tapes. <laughs> release those tapes. <laughs> Unless it's like a whole, you don't want to celebrate this guy type thing. Like, he doesn't deserve to be praised in a positive way for, for some art he did. After what he went on to well, do, I'll give it some perspective. Like, Would you release Jeffrey Dahmer albums or somewhere, someone even? I'm not sure. Like, I don't history. know. Oh, yeah, it's weird. But I, yeah. I mean, they'd make a ton of money, and it wouldn't go to him. It would go to whoever, whoever, whatever record company or producer now owns those tapes. <laughs> Nobody wants the producer credit on that fucking yeah, pile right. of shit. We'll do it. Cool Down Media Records <laughs> presents the Lost Charlie tapes. Oh my god! <laughs> can As you you've imagine? Never heard him before. <laughs> we have commentary after every track. <laughs> hey, can we buy those? Declan, get my checkbook. 
Let's look into buying buying that. Let's get us an attorney to talk to. Let's write an offer. <laughs> so we're offering you fifteen dollars <laughs> for those tapes. A handsome twenty dollars. <laughs> Imagine that press release we can put out. Cool down media announced today. They had acquired the masters of a. Can you the original imagine? Brian Wilson recording session featuring good old Charlie Manson. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> it's got to be some kind of a record. <laughs> Literally, it'll be on a record. It'll be some record. Vinyl. No, we'll, we'll do we'll sign them. We'll sign them. There you go. So that two people in the world can listen. <laughs> so in need of money, Charlie went out looking for Dennis, but he found Dennis's agent. Um, Charlie pretty much just burst into this guy's office demanding the money. And Dennis's agent told Charlie the payment would be coming. Just have patience. And Charlie said that he wasn't waiting anymore. He said every time he talked to anybody with this, you know, regarding any of the music stuff, it was always, we'll talk next week. Well, you know, it'll be a couple days. Charlie said, quote, you know what, man, you owe me the money. It's a long overdue bill. Just pay up or I'm going to have to do something that might make you regret it. Like one of these nights, you might go home and see nothing but charred embers where your house was. Sounds like a stupid thing to say to an attorney. <laughs> yeah, this guy pretty much told him to get fucked, like get out of my office. <laughs> so Charlie went looking for Terry Melcher. Charlie had been to Terry Melcher's house on at least one occasion for a party. We talked about that last week. So Charlie went to 10050 CLO Drive. As Charlie walked up to the main house, he was met by Shiro Katami, an Iranian photographer who had become friends with Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate during the making of a documentary film called Mia and Roman. He was there to photograph Sharon Tate before she left for Rome the next day. Seeing Charlie, Katami went out onto the front porch to ask him what he wanted. Charlie said that he was looking for Terry Melcher, and Katami told him, you know, I don't know who that is. This is the Polanski residence. He told Charlie to try the back alley, which meant the path to the guest house behind the main house. Sharon Tate walked up behind Hatami in the house's front door and asked him who was there. He said that a man was looking for Terry Melcher, and he and Sharon Tate stood there and watched while Charlie went to the guest house and walked back to the front a minute or two later and left. That evening, Charlie went back to the house and again went to the guest house. He walked into the enclosed porch and talked to Rudy Altabelli. Remember from last week, he was the owner of the house. He was in the entertainment business, you know, music and movies and stuff. Um, he had just come out of the shower. Charlie asked for Terry Melcher and Altabelli told Charlie through the screen door that Terry Melcher had moved to Malibu and he said he did not know his new address. Altabelli told Charlie he was leaving the country the next day, and Charlie said he'd like to talk to him about Terry Melcher when he got back. Altabelli said, we're not going to be able to do that. I'm going to be gone for more than a year. But he asked Charlie to not bother the tenant in the main house anymore. Altabelli and Sharon Tate flew together to Rome the next day, and Sharon Tate asked him whether, quote, that creepy-looking guy had gone to see him at the guest house the day before. It's amazing these small steps that, you know, lead to this end result no terry melcher no sharon tate murder and he moved out this was you know mm. he was just renting that house yeah. on july 1st 1969 tex watson came up with a plan to buy a huge amount of weed with his on again off again girlfriend named luella he was just trying to like kill the grass and wanted to throw a bunch of weeds down yep that's an odd thing to do. But i guess when <laughs> when you're doing 
LSD and acid and have CTE. Yeah, you know what he was doing. <laughs> then they would turn around and sell that weed to make money for the Manson family. The deal was for 55 pounds of weed for $2,500, which Tex would allow Luella to keep six pounds for herself if she could come up with the cash to make the initial purchase and help him sell off the rest. So you could buy $45 pounds of weed in the late 60s? I don't know. What's 2500 in today's money? Yeah, I don't know. Come on, Brain Man. You usually know this shit. Names <laughs> <laughs> are numbers, guy. Usually has us all figured out. I usually look it up beforehand, but I didn't, well, this I didn't is included to do this one. Uh, 21 grand. So 21 grand for 55 pounds of weed? Yeah. So was it about nine times? Eight times? Still, that's still three hundred fifty dollar pounds. Like that's pretty cheap, isn't it? I don't. Know. I honestly, I don't know. I'm straight edge. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean this this plan doesn't even sound great right off the bat. No, it doesn't. It <laughs> you doesn't. know what I mean? Like, I guarantee Tex did not think this out mm. more than what more than twenty to thirty minutes, probably. <laughs> the photos you showed us before we started of Tex. <laughs> They're you when we're on page six of an outline and Dave starts doing a voice, <laughs> like just laughing it up, having the time of your life, not realizing what state you're in. I mean, like literally like geographically, like you don't know what state you're in is what I would be willing to bet sometimes. My back in Texas. <laughs> so Luella didn't have the cash, but she knew someone who did and who would likely want to take the rest of the weed so that they could each take their cuts, which was six pounds each for free and supply the rest to the person she knew would have the money. And his name was Bernard lots of Papa Crow. He was a very large, intimidating drug dealer. Think the guy who ran the brothel in devil's rejects. <laughs> yeah, that did. You know what else that guy, he was the, the trucker in the Rob zombie Halloween remake. Yes. Michael beat to death in the stall. Remember that guy? That's the same guy. Mm -hmm. I try to forget the remakes, the Michael or the Rob Zombie ones. He's like in his trucker jumpsuit and he's just in a stall and he's knocking yeah. on the doors. I'm trying to pinch one, rub one out in here, fellas. <laughs> Whatever he says to him. That's more of an accurate description of. I remember that. Lots of Papa. Yeah. He had like the afro with the part. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. It looked a lot like that, dude. Yeah. Lots of Papa. That's a cool nickname. Once Luella introduced Crow to Tex. Bernard Crow decided that he would be driving the two where they needed to go for the deal because Crow could tell that Tex was a fucking idiot. Like, I'm not trusting this person. And Crow kept Luella in his black Cadillac with his two bodyguards as collateral until Tex returned with the weed. The group drove to a location, and as Tex exited the vehicle and received the cash, he left to meet his dealer, and he never came back. <laughs> Tex did not have a dealer. <laughs> Tex didn't give a fuck about Luella. He already knew what he was going to do here. And mm. Just ripped them off. So there wasn't even a deal to begin with. He was just taking the money and running. Yeah. Smart. Because lots of Papa sounds like a guy. I'll just be like, okay, easy come, <laughs> easy go. Exactly. That Tex rascal stole my money. <laughs> Bernard Crow knew that Tex was staying at Spawn Ranch. And before Tex even got back to Spawn, Crow was on the phone calling. Manson family member Thomas Whaleman, who went as TJ, answered the phone. Remember, Texas' real name is Charles, 
and Crow didn't know him by text. He he knew him as Charles. So he immediately oh, was yeah, like, yeah. when TJ answered the phone, lots of pop was like, motherfucker, put Charles on the phone right now. Mm-hmm. And so TJ's like, okay, I, I don't know anyone other than Charles Manson. Yeah. So he handed the phone. <laughs> so he found, he handed the phone over to uh, Charles Manson and Crow was like, you better get back here with your money or I'm going to fucking kill your girlfriend. And Charles Manson was like, hey, man, I don't even know what. Chill you're t- out, man. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, um, but I'll come over and sort it out with you. Like, there's no need to kill anybody's girlfriends or anything like that. A, a swell thing to do. I wouldn't have done that. I'd be like, what the yeah. fuck are you talking about, asshole? That's big balls. Be like, all right, lots of pop I'm on my way over, <laughs> motherfucker. But the way he even did it, like, you don't have to kill anybody. I'll come over. We'll yeah, figure this out. We got it. We'll work through it together. They certainly got through it somehow. I'd be like, uh, no, no, there's no Charlie here. Or Charlie? <laughs> yeah. I think he moved. <laughs> well, the other threat that uh, lots of Papa was making is like he knew that they were at Spawn Ranch. So he was also threatening that he was going to just come there with his people and just kill everybody. He was like, I'll just kill everybody there if you don't give me my fucking money. So Charlie was kind of forced to go sort this out. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, he didn't really have an option. So he's not so swell after all. I'm starting to think Charlie's not a nice guy. <laughs> with aspirations of being a music star. Sounds like a piece of shit. Kind of. <laughs> we'll see. He's um, got some dopes around him. Texas, the impetus for a lot of all this nonsense. He's such a dope. I'll give my yeah. final thoughts at the end. We'll see. Okay, we'll sure. We'll see how sure. the story changes me. Well, we'll see in four weeks. I'll, I'll give Ian, yeah. <laughs> four more weeks when we get to the end of this thing. In in March, I'll give you my final answer. <laughs> TJ drove Charlie to Crow's. And once inside, it was Bernard Crow, his two bodyguards, Luella tied up on a couch, TJ and Charlie with a twenty-two buntline revolver in the back of the waist of his jeans. After a whole bunch of arguing and threats and things getting really heated, Charlie pulled out the 22 and fired, but it just clicked. Bernard Crow grabbed Charlie by his throat and held him up against the wall like Charlie's feet just dangling because this guy's more than a foot taller than, yeah. than Charles Manson. I bet it's not a good feeling when you hear the click no. and you don't hear the gunshot. Like, uh-uh, I'm five foot two or whatever he is. And <laughs> Charlie said that... Uh, that Bernard Crow just held him there and started choking him. It was like, I'm going to strangle you with my bare hands. And Charlie had the gun pressed up against his stomach and just kept pulling the trigger over and over again. Finally, the gun went off, shooting Crow in the stomach, to which Bernard Crow fell down and passed out. At that point, the two bodyguards backed off and Charlie escaped with TJ and Luella. I find it extremely odd that Crow nor his bodyguards had any guns. Like what? They were showing up, and now Charlie pulls a gun, and the bodyguard's like, oh, hey, man, we didn't expect this. Like, we're just going to, we thought we were going to beat you with our bare hands. Yeah, it doesn't We have no up. guns yeah. available. It's very weird. Well, like, as he's pulling the trigger and Crow is choking him, wouldn't the bodyguards be, like, aimed and pointed at his head? Or pull it out of his hand, at least. Or do something. Yeah. But then they shoot him, and they back off. Oh, we didn't expect this. Who brings guns to a drug deal? <laughs> They brought Bernard Crow into trial to testify to this story, which is interesting because the media, like the news interviews him and stuff. And it's like, oh, we're forgetting the part there. He 
had a woman tied up and was <laughs> fully going to kill her. Right. <laughs> you know? right. He's not an innocent person here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then the news back then were, you know, they interviewed him like, oh, he's a witness in the Charles Manson. You know, How did you feel when uh, <laughs> Charles Manson was threatening you, lots of papa? <laughs> yeah, it was weird to see them talking to him like, like that's an interesting. Yeah, he was going to murder that woman. The next day on the news, there was a story about the body of a Black Panther member being dumped at the hospital. Charlie fully thought that he had killed Bernard Crow, And now with this news, he was like, fuck, I just killed a Black Panther. They know we're out here at Spawn Ranch because lots of Papa was threatening to kill everybody out there. Now the Black Panthers are coming there to fuck us up. The crazy thing about Bernard Crow is you know, Charlie thought that he killed Bernard Crow all the way up until the trial. <laughs> he funny. he thought that this was all accurate all the way up until Bernard Crow came in to testify. Imagine that shock. So this made his paranoia go through the roof. He made sure that all the uh all the members of the family knew how to shoot guns. Everyone had knives on them at all times. He started doing these things called that he called creepy crawls where they would break into someone's house and just move around items not really uh don't steal anything but just kind of break in and fuck around with stuff he pitched it as you know creepy crawl so it's got this fun term to it he's been accused of that it was just to like train them trial run to be able to break in places makes sense we should do a creepy crawl at mike's house you can kind of move stuff around it's all right I mean, I'll see you on the cameras I have in my front and backyard, but okay, fade. That's it. the challenge to creepy crawling and uh, and it's evade not. your cameras. Okay, do some Ocean's Eleven type shit. That's right. I'm gonna cut the cord to your camera. <laughs> How about that, no, I want I'm you gonna to go, unring your bell. I want you to oh, go boom. I want you to go further. Like I want you to edit it so that it's just like that cut of like just a clean uh, backyard. Put the loop in. So yeah, you like can't the even loop that they it. did. Mm. On like the uh, what they do in the vault, right? In yeah. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Do that. Don't do that amateur fucking okay. cut a cord. If you're going to work a worker, work a worker. <laughs> at this point, too, they were out at Barker Ranch. So really out in the middle of the desert, completely isolated. Um, and Charlie was getting really mean. Everybody said that as soon as this happened, everything stopped being, you know, free love. Everything is, you know, peaceful. The Helter Skelter shit was getting pretty fucking weird, like that race war stuff, but nothing was like abusive or violent or anything. And he became very abusive towards women, very violent. There's some, you know, there was some talk of rape, things like that. He went like full cult leader as soon as real they got, quick. Yeah, as soon as they got yeah. out to the to the desert, it was all that negative cult leader stuff, Jim Jones, mm. you know, sexual assault, violence, all mm. that stuff. And it kind of happens overnight with them. Like it, it just goes zero to a hundred as soon as the lots of pop thing happens. How do you explain that? It's because he thinks it's imminent now that this race where they're going to come out and look for him. So he's just, I mean, he manic ramping up. Maybe he fully 100% believed that the black Panthers were coming to just kill all of them hmm. that he fucked up by doing that. Yeah. I'd be scared too. A couple weeks after the lots of Papa incident, the Manson family found themselves in trouble with that biker gang we talked about at the beginning, the Straight Satans. 
The family had become friends with a guy named Gary Hinman. Gary Hinman had been working on a PhD in sociology at UCLA. He was a big political activist, a piano teacher, and on the side, he was running a mescaline lab out of his basement. The next part of this is it's muddy like most of this story, but Gary Hinman was really a mescaline dealer. It's just debated on why exactly the family killed him. Gary sold some mescaline to Charlie. Then Charlie sold it to the straight Satans. Not too long after, guys from the straight Satans came back to the ranch saying that their customers got sick. Like, this is a bad batch of mescaline. We want our money back. Charlie said, sure, give me it back. I'll take the mescaline back to Gary, see what's wrong with it, and get another batch. Straight Satan says, well, we can't do that. We threw all of it away. To which Charlie was like, that's not how drug deals work. Like, you could have just fucking sold that to people. You know, you're not getting your money back. Threw it away. (laughs) After the straight Satans left, Charlie sent Mary, Sadie, and family member Bobby Boussoulet to talk to Gary about that batch of mescaline. The other version of why they went to Gary's, um, according to Sadie, Charlie thought that Gary Hinman was rich, so he sent them over to convince Gary to join the family and give them all his money that Charlie, for some reason, thought Gary had inherited. Regardless of why they were there, on July 25th, Mary, Sadie, and Bobby went to Gary's and the three of them held Gary hostage for two days while he denied having any money. Over the course of those two days, Charlie came over to the house to try and get Gary to give over the money. At one point, Charlie cut Gary across his ear and face with a sword, but Gary still said he didn't have any money and he was telling the truth. Charles Manson's version of about the sword is absolutely ridiculous. He said, he says that he was given a Japanese sword somewhere down the line i think someone from the straight satans gave him a japanese sword so he knew that gary was into japanese sword so he brought that with him oh to maybe try and you know give it to gary as a gift and and struggles and things yeah he ended up getting cut in the face with it interesting i'm pretty sure he just took a knife over there and cut him in the face that's what bobby (laughs) boosley said (laughs) and sadie and everybody else charlie's like beatrice and he flew to okinawa and got a (laughs) Hattori Hanzo sword specifically made for him. (laughs) That's what he used to cut him. At that point, Bobby Boosley said that he was ordered by Charlie to kill Gary. Bobby stabbed Gary to death, then used Gary's blood to write political piggy on the wall and to draw a panther paw to make it look like this was done by the Black Panthers. Clever. Misdirection. Setting up. Swerve. (laughs) (laughs) Setting up Helter Skelter inching it a little yeah, closer right. after the gary hinman murder charlie took a truck from spawn ranch and headed to northern california because he wanted to get away from everything um and that's true he really did that because he picked up a new member during this trip named stephanie schramm charlie was at a gas station and saw stephanie go into a bathroom and he hung around until she came out and started a conversation with her and started hitting on her and he was like who are you here with And Stephanie told him that she was with her boyfriend, which her boyfriend was sitting at the other gas pump in his car. And Charlie was like, well, why don't you ditch your boyfriend? He's a fucking loser. Come with me. And Stephanie just hopped in the truck with Charlie. Fucking some move like Matthew McConaughey and Days and Confused. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. The chicks at the burger joint. (laughs) Plus, it did not work for him, but. No. No, she's joining the family just in time for all the good parts, right? (laughs) 
She skipped the appetizers, went right That's to the right. main course. So Stephanie hopped in the truck with Charlie, and he writes about it like they just had this kind of road trip adventure for a couple of days. They were, you know, having sex out in the desert, like under the stars and stuff, dropping acid on their way back to Spawn Ranch. Sounds great. On August 6th, 1969, Bobby Boussley was arrested while driving one of Gary Hinnon's cars. He killed him, but he's driving around in one of his cars. (laughs) And the knife he used to kill Gary with was hidden in the tire well. Smart. Master criminals, all these guys. According to Charlie, he got back on August 7th, 1969 with Stephanie Schramm, which is true. But in Charlie's version, his core group of followers, so Sadie... Uh, Big Patty hit him with the news right off the bat that Bobby had been arrested right after he got out of the car. I picture him like Kramer, like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) However, they said that they had a plan. The family could commit more murders that looked like Gary's murder to make the police think that the killer is still out there. Like they got the wrong guy and they would just let Bobby Mm. go. The murders would be committed in a wealthy white neighborhood. So it'd kind of be a twofer. Bobby would get out and Helter Skelter would start. They keep inching that closer. At that point, Charlie found Tex and he said, you know, I killed lots of Papa because of the shit that you got me in. You owe me one. Go with the girls, help them commit these murders. And then Charlie told them to do whatever Tex said to do. He said that when he found Tex to tell him this, Tex was just sitting there drumming on his knees no music Tex was just sitting there derp, 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 derp. <laughs> he was just sitting out in the silence outside just drumming away just living his best life <laughs> whatever music was going on in Tex's head probably Kokomo the prosecution and other family members say that when Charlie was hit with the news of Bobby being arrested he was like fuck this we need to kick off Helter Skelter now and ordered them to go to 10050 Sailor Drive. Charlie told them to take two changes of clothes, kill everybody in the house, and make it as gruesome as possible, and quote, leave a sign, something witchy. So he wasn't necessarily thinking Melcher would be there. It's just a house he knew the address, right? In a wealthy white neighborhood, and it's probably the first thing that popped in his head. Yeah. There was no thought going into it. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Mm-hmm. He says that he didn't tell them to take the clothes and what exactly to do. He said, like, you go help them with their plan, Tex. They listen to you. I don't want to know anything else. Don't mm. tell me a thing about this. I don't want any involvement with it. This is your... He always says everything's a trip. So he'd be like, this is your trip. This isn't what I'm doing. Like setting up plausible deniability for the future. Yeah. But he even... But in his book, he does, st- he does admit the same leave something witchy he's like yeah i said leave something witchy behind i meant incense man (laughs) (laughs) on the night of august 8th 1969 sharon tate who was eight and a half months pregnant was entertaining some friends while her husband roman polanski was in europe working on a movie her friend and former romantic partner jay sebring jay sebring was like one of the most popular hairstylists in la at the time Roman Polanski's friend, Wojciech Frakowski, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, heirs to the Folger coffee fortune. Just after midnight on August 9th, 1969, Tex, Sadie, Patty, 
and new member who had only been there a month, Linda Kasabian, arrived at 10050 Cielo Drive. Together, they climbed a telephone pole that was in the front entrance of the house and cut the phone line. Then they backed their car toward the bottom of a hill that led to the house and walked back up. They thought that the gate could have an alarm, so they climbed over an area full of bushes that still led down into the property. Like it was a like a sloped kind of wooded area. Mm-hmm. That you, I guess you wouldn't think that somebody would climb through there, but you could find good aerial shots of the the whole property to see what you're talking about. Yeah. All of a sudden they saw headlights coming toward them from within the property and Tex told the girls to hide in the bushes. Tex stepped out of the bushes and stepped in front of the car. Inside was 18 year old Stephen Parent. Stephen was visiting his friend, William Gerritsen, who was the caretaker of the property. Tex pointed a 22 at Stephen, the same one used to shoot lots of Papa and Stephen started begging Tex to not shoot him. Tex instead attacked Stephen with a knife leaving brutal defensive wounds on the palm of Steven's hand, like, like cut his hand in half. Mm. As they fought for a brief moment in the front of Steven's car, Tex shot him four times in the chest and abdomen, killing Steven in the front seat. Tex then ordered the girls to help push Steven's car with his body inside farther up the driveway out of sight. Boy, talk about wrong place, wrong time, man. Just high school, right out of high school kid just trying yeah. to hang out with his friend. Ugh. Didn't even, you know, no relation to Sharon Tate or Roman Polanski at all. If he had been 10 minutes earlier, 10 minutes later. So no one heard the gunshots inside or anything? Uh, Not inside. I mean, I don't know about inside because no one's alive. No one survived the tele. Yeah. There's, it's a good point. Yeah. There's people in the um, surrounding area that heard gunshots. Mm, all right. Which th- some people called him in, some didn't. They thought, you know whatever and went back yeah. to sleep after that Tex cut the screen of a window and told linda kasabian to keep watch down by the gate so she walked over to Stephen parents car and waited Tex removed the screen entered through the window and let sadie and patty in through the front door he whispered to sadie which woke up wojek farkowski who was sleeping on the living room couch Tex kicked him in the head and when farkowski asked him who he was what are you doing here Text replied, quote, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Isn't that a similar line in Devil's Rejects used like that? Bill Mosley. I was yeah. just thinking that. Yeah. Is it the is it the same line or is it's it pretty close? Yeah. Text then told Sadie and Patty to find everyone else in the house, to which they did and forced everyone into the living room. Text started to tie Sharon Tate and JC Springs next together with a rope that he had brought, then threw it over one of the living room ceiling beams. Jay Sebring yelled at Tex, like, don't throw her around like that. She's eight and a half months pregnant. And in response, Tex shot him in the abdomen. Abigail Folger was taken back up to her room to get her purse, which she was begging, you know, I'll give you whatever money I have. Um, And she gave them $70. That's all she had on her. Tex then stabbed Jay Sebring seven times, killing him. He was stabbed four times in the front, three in the back, and one wound that was considered fatal penetrating into his left lung, Um, one superficially in the left shoulder, and one slicing wound on his hand, which was a defensive wound. Wojak Farkowski's hands had been tied with a towel, but he untied himself and started fighting with Sadie, who stabbed at his legs with a knife. 
He fought his way out of the front door and onto the porch, but Tex caught up with him, struck him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabbed him 51 times, and shot him twice. That is a lot of stab wounds. You can see the autopsy photos, and it's a lot of stab wounds. Yeah. A lot. Can't wait to get home and Google those. There, there's, yeah, there's a lot of crime scene photos and stuff. They're not great. Yeah, they're gruesome. Yeah, they're pretty gruesome. Linda Kasabian said that she heard, quote, horrifying sounds. Um, so she started to walk up toward the house from where she was hiding by Stephen Parent's car. Linda said that she lied and told Sadie that she heard someone coming. And Linda said that she lied because she wanted the murders to stop. A little late, Tuts, huh? Should have thought of that a while back. (laughs) Inside the house, Abigail Folger got away from Patty and ran out of a bedroom door that led outside to the pool. Patty chased her and caught Abigail on the front lawn where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Tex saw Patty fighting with Abigail and ran over to help Patty kill her. Together, they stabbed Abigail Folger 28 times, four to her face, five to her neck, four to her chest, and another 15 wounds throughout her body, like her arms and legs. And and 90% of these were like stab in, not slashing. These are like stabs, so like in your face, stab. Deep. Yeah. Yeah. Back inside the house for a final time, Sharon Tate begged to be allowed to live long enough to give birth and offered herself as a hostage. Like, take me, do whatever you want. Just let me live long enough to give birth, and then you can kill me or do whatever. But both Sadie and Tex stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times, killing her. At the beginning of these murders, Charlie told them to leave something witchy behind, so Sadie wrote pig on the front door and Sharon Tate's blood as they left. And that's where we'll pick back up on part four. Part four, we'll get into the LaBianca murders, how they got caught, the trials, and then all that MK Ultra stuff. And then in part five, we'll get into... Where are they now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in part six, where are they now? Revisited. <laughs> we'll go through each individual parole hearing that's occurred since night. <laughs> Sadie. Is it Sadie that holds the record? Like the longest incarcerated female in California. Yeah. And that's I think right. she also has. It's either her. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> you named your phone Sadie. <laughs> that was weird. Siri responded to that. <laughs> Um, I think it's either her or Patty have the most parole yeah, hearings in California history. Mm-hmm. Just keep getting to know for them. females. Yeah, females. Hmm. Hope you had fun. Sirhan had to be getting up there at some point. The record. Yeah, not a female though. It's weird how the story turned so fast. Yeah, they were goofballs and whatnot, but not really causing yeah. too much harm. And then a bunch all of dumb sudden, hippies doing too yeah. many drugs, getting into some tomfoolery. Yeah. And then, like, the end of, like, the last page and a half of this was like, oh, by the way, shit's about to get real. Yeah, as soon as the lots of Papa thing happened. But even that one, you can maybe justify a little bit. Like, maybe maybe they were going to save a girl, and, you know, then shit popped off. Okay. And then they go to this house. And then it gets evil. Yeah. Real quick. The motive is debated, you know. Like you said earlier, he this is the first house he thought of. There's, you know, people that think that he was looking for Terry Melcher. He I don't know sent, why he would be. He right? sent them there. Well, because he burned them on the. No, but I mean, he's been told numerous times. Unless he, he doesn't he did, live there anyway. He, you don't think he maybe he didn't believe him. Maybe. 
Um, so it's like, I know that fucking guy is still there. Right. Go to that house. Yeah. That, I guess that makes sense too. Yeah. We'll get into that next week, but there's a bunch of different, I guess, things you'll probably never know about this case yeah. with the motive and stuff. Well, it's all from that one eyewitness account, right? Pretty much. Most yeah. of this that we just talked about. Yeah. Sadie stole, Sadie said a bunch of stuff to a uh, grand jury. Then like kind of recanted all that and got went off the rails with the trial. And then she wrote a book later in life and kind of admitted to more. But you think with all the acid that they were doing and how long it's been, recollections are not great. <laughs> right. Yeah. How much of the the uh, their remembrance is just based on what they read and what they hear about right. what other people say. Tex wrote a book as well. I didn't read it, but <laughs> I'm gonna read that one. <laughs> I can't imagine he remembers anything very well. Can you yeah, imagine if right. it was just like an autobiography? But nothing about the Manson family. <laughs> like, he just wrote this book about, like, living in bliss and, like, happiness, good times. He has no drugs. idea why he's in prison. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm here. I think I sold some drugs to some wrong people. And life is good. Did you guys listen to that White Album? It's fantastic. <laughs> so we just took a little hiatus to watch the uh, premiere of this <laughs> Dana White slap fight show on TBS. Yeah, there's no way to kayfabe it. I don't remember what we stopped, what we stopped talking you about. You finished the outline. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about some stuff. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> because I feel like I've got CTE after watching this shit. Brutal. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Like, at least wrestling is entertainment. <laughs> there's some characters, man. These are people <laughs> knocking the fuck out of each other. That's wild. And, like, they don't explain what the rules are. I don't know what the rules are. This country's not dumb enough. We need some more of uh, a, you know, CTE head injuries walking around. This is legitimately one of the times like watching this. I'm like, I kind of feel bad. I'm American right now. Like, <laughs> like we have this hot dog eating contests and fucking pizza eating contests and pierogi eating contests and whatever the fuck else you want to do. Okay. We're gluttonous. I get it. Now we're legitimately giving each other concussions and celebrating it like round by round. They said those motherfuckers went 27 <laughs> rounds Epic. slapping each other. Is that well, sanctioned by any gaming board? Yeah, that referee. I'm sure it's in Las Vegas, right? The referee that was just referring was uh, Jason Herzog. He's a UFC rep. He's a... Um, hmm. But with but, the Nevada Commission, like he ref he referees UFC fights and stuff. But does that mean this this slap fighting is itself. is is sanctioned, or does yeah, that just I mean they can so. hire anybody to come do like a a, a gimmick? I believe thing? it's sanctioned. It's got to be Nevada, right? We'll have to look yeah. further. Well, he, into this. Yeah, wow. Dana was saying they were out in Vegas. Yeah, of course it has yeah, to be. What else? That is insane. That is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Whew. Like again. I know wrestling's ridiculous, but at least it's entertainment. This is meant to be real life. And it is like, I don't know how you fake that. No, what the that was real. Fuck. So when we doing cool down media slap fights, because <laughs> <laughs> I want to see people get knocked the fuck out. All right. That was uh, quite a story today. It's interesting. I don't, I didn't know a lot of this back stuff. So happy to be learning some. Clearly I didn't. So yeah, learning a lot today last three weeks yeah it's a really muddy story it's mm -hmm. all over the place everybody like we were talking about like tex has a book sadie has a book everybody has a book everybody has a version right. so of course they do i think this is the one that at least to me is very coherent it makes the most sense you and i've been doing this week tell us <laughs> 
been watching a lot of Charlie Chaplin. Really? Yeah. Found some on, it's on HBO Max. They got a bunch of movies. Okay. I hadn't seen them since I was a kid. My dad was a big fan. All right. That's fun. So I've been to some of that. Modern Times, I think, is my favorite. Okay. Anybody out there looking for some Charlie Chaplin. Some silent film era. Mike's doing an intellectual. Look at you. Some quiet black and white. I've never seen one before. I was it's watching fun. one last night. I started at 11 o'clock. I don't know why. And I was up for till 1230. Legitimately laughing out loud at some parts. <laughs> really? Legitimately. But I, I don't know. I like that kind of comedy, that humor. And, you know. Yeah, so that sounds real good stuff. Legitimately. And I was like, I I didn't like I was like, I'll put it on for a half hour and then I'll fall asleep or turn it off. Nope. Couldn't do it. Good stuff. Cultural differences going on last night. You watching Charlie Chaplin. I was watching uh, Vince McMahon. (laughs) (laughs) Do do what? (laughs) It was a continuation of the Val Venus. Oh, okay. uh, Choppy, choppy. Well, no, Terry Rollins is pregnant now. Oh, oh, yeah, so. getting the good stuff. Yeah. Well, in all fairness, I was just over here watching slap fights. So. <laughs> Clearly, I am no better than anybody else. <laughs> well, Mike and I went to Hamilton this weekend. We did a culture. That was your, well, your very turn. Culture. In all fairness, we did a culture. I fucking loved it. It was so good. I wanted to see it for so long. Finally, I got to go. Ian's not big on the musicals and will not join us for these outings. Yeah. Well, in, in all fairness, though, <laughs> if Val Venus had just impregnated Terry Runnels, would you leave the house? <laughs> Not sure I would. So I went we all, to the office one with you guys. That was good. That's true. Yeah. You did. Look at us being cultured individuals. That was fun. All right. So we all got a bunch going on. But anyways, if anyone wants some Charlie Chaplin, I didn't know there was on HBO Max. They had a bunch of. I didn't either. I want to watch some of that. Yeah. Modern Times is my favorite. I don't know. Anyways, um, Dave, what do we got from uh, Patreon? Thank you to new patrons, Jackie Hewitt, Ben Ware, Pamela Ancana, Jackie, Chris O'Boyle, Cooper Huckaba, Brianne Spangler, Alexis, Amanda Gwinden, Tom Justison, Deanna Murdoch, Oscar194, Kelsey Desarn, Nathan Kennington, Amy and Indy, Wayo, Bryce Lonkar, Frank Ryan, Sharon Brooks, Carolyn Beagle, Ellie's Stinky Feets. Mm, well, thanks. It's probably your husband. <laughs> Take a shower, Ellie. Corey Shepard, Alex, Kanan Domini, Cadillac, Skylar Duffy. Andy Lovo, Hannah Stoddard, Brian is cool, Laurel, Jennifer Daly, do more weeds than Ian. <laughs> so you think. <laughs> yeah. Challenge accepted, motherfuckers. Crystal T, Amanda Thomas. We live in a Tom Brady Madden simulation, and when he retires, we're all going to die. <laughs> Do you agree with this, Mike? <laughs> it's the smartest thing I've heard all night. <laughs> Jules, Laura Adamovich, Ariana Ray, Destiny, Queen Dirtbag, Safa A, Frederick Verbalin. Bree Allen and Jennifer Prusky. Thank you so much to these new patrons. 
Ian, what do you got? For iTunes, I have one for your spouse is at Mike's house. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Uh, Heidi Tada, Chandler Brink, Hippie Hemming Wizard, Nessa Marie 311, Rachel Murphy, and Necronama Mama. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. We got across the border, Dave. And the international reviews, Mike? Wen Skewacy from Australia and Jimbo123456 GCCDTV, also from Australia. That's a mouthful. Thank it's, you for those uh, kind international reviews. You're showing me up on those, uh, what do you those mean? reviews. Every time someone does that, I'm like, oh, they just look like they hit their keyboard. <laughs> I'll read all that. So, kayfabe name. Thank you. <laughs> GT, not going not gonna to work here anymore. Not going to get a shout out from us. <laughs> Uh, what do you got? I got a couple of military shout outs. Uh, Liam St. John, active duty Marine, and uh, Michael Brown, Army veteran. He also sent us some stuff, so we should look in a military base. Conspiracies might make a good show. So what? The kind fucking of Fed shut us down and censor us and have us assassinated? <laughs> I don't think so, Michael Brown. <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be cool. I'd look into that. Yeah, that could be interesting. A lot of interesting things going on, apparently. So thank you for your service. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you. Good stuff. All right. We got anything else to talk about tonight? I think we're good. I think we're going to watch some of the slap fighting a little more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how long this is on for, but my God, they're fucking hitting the shit out of each other. One, two, three. Oh, he fucking knocked oh. him out. He's out cold. He's oh. out. Oh my. He's God. out cold. No, no. He's trying to do the Undertaker sit up. <laughs> He, no, he can't do it. Somebody stop the damn match. <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is insane. Call the match. It's He's not going to make the clock. That's it. That's game. Calling it off. No, he's like, buddy. What? what? Buddy. Jesus. Dana Wade's like, money, 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 money. <laughs> money. All right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, at Necronomapod, <laughs> patreon.com slash search Necronomapod. Uh, we're on Amazon, search Necronomapod, and we are on Spring for um, merch that includes what? Posters, mugs, socks, wine tumblers, wine tumblers, all the all that fun there's, stuff. There's no socks, but no, we did. We, okay, stuff. never mind the socks. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> So anyways, check us out. Thanks. All right, you guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>